Amen. So how are you doing in the joy department? Checked on you last week. Well, Pastor Calvin's doing great. That's good. It's one more response than I got in the first service, Pastor Kay, so thank you very much. I always count on you. That's great. How about peace? Are we? Good. We should be. Uh, If we understand correctly who our God is, And what Jesus promised us when he said, uh, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You know, he started by saying, before he said that, he said, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. We have this incredible relationship with the living God who is sovereign over all things, all-powerful God, and he sent us the Holy Spirit to indwell our lives and to bring to our hearts peace. Peace knowing that the sovereign God of the universe is our God and invites us not to be afraid, not to fear. So I hope we aren't. Well, um, I'm guessing that you would agree with me that Tuesday night was not a public relations success for American politics was anything but. In fact, it's a, a sorry tale in the South, but it is a great backdrop for our sermon this morning on self-control, because we did not see it manifest before our very eyes, but we want to look at it in the scriptures today. In fact, as I, um, as I was watching it, as were so many others, if you want high rankings on TV, do an American debate these days, and you will get it. But as I was looking at it, it reminded me of the old days just before a wrestling match when like Bobby the Brain Heenan and the Weasel would go at it, and uh, they would threaten each other. It was sort of like that. It was like back in the old days. But, but anyway, that's, that's, uh, that's not self-control. We're looking at self-control, more like Bickergate on Tuesday. Um, so when we, get our, when we get in our mind the idea of self-control, that wasn't it. But often we think of self-control the same way that the Greeks did because the word, of course, uh, comes out of the Greek language that was used by Peter in his, his uh, exhortation to us. Uh, and, and the Greek imagination of that word was a quality, an ability to be untouched by the pressure of people or agendas or emotions. In fact, it was the many of us know the kind of emotional makeup of the Stoic, a Stoicism. And uh, when we think of Stoicism, we think of Mr. Spock, uh, the Vulcan who, uh, who never got, he was unflappable, never got, never got emotionally engaged in the human passions and lived above them. Well, that's not what the Bible means about self-control either. So it's neither what we saw Tuesday night, nor is it what we learn from Mr. Spock, it's something else. 
So I invite you to open up your Bibles this morning to 2 Peter chapter 1 as we continue on in this great series of these qualities, these things. And um, we've been working on them in our lives. God has been working on them. We've been making every effort. I, I trust you've been making every effort on the goodness category. Calvary Baptist Church people are the goodest peoples in the whole Durham region, yes? Love the grammar. And we are the most knowledgeable people in uh, terms of the things of God in the Durham region, yes? Yes, we are. All right, then how about self-control? We are the most self-controlled people in all of Durham region. Why? In all of Canada, yes? Well, we, I, don't, I don't know. We'll find out. We'll, we'll have to check this out in the scriptures. Because in your Bible, it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control. A lot of us wish Peter had just skipped that idea and moved on to other things. Self-control is uh, a pretty big deal to manage. And uh, I, I trust that uh, we'll learn something today. Uh, I've certainly learned something in, uh, in preparing. So before we dig in any farther, let's open in prayer, shall we? Father, uh, we don't want to presume to open up your word and think that we can just dive in and uh, em embrace it and understand it without asking you for the amazing gift of the Spirit of God to, to guide us into truth, to teach us. So Lord, speak to your people this morning through your word. I pray that you will help us to understand what you want us to know. I pray that you'll help me, Lord, to, to uh, speak with uh, clarity and to teach what is true. I pray, Father, that um, you will, in the teaching of your word, give us uh, insight and willingness to receive what you have for us, to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in our lives, to see real change happen to us, I pray, in this area of self-control. For we ask it in Jesus' name, and we, because we know this is your will for us, uh, so we can ask you, uh, with um, confidence in Jesus name amen so as we have tried to do our outline is what is it why is it and how is it so that's what we're gonna do this morning we just try to answer those questions what is biblical self-control what is it that Peter is calling us to what is it that the Spirit of God is calling us to in God's Word here um, it's another urgency, make every effort. This is to, to engage our lives. This, this is something that we need to fully embrace in our lives as of vital importance. It is not acceptable to say, well, you know, <laughs> this has been something that's eluded me my whole life. It's just my makeup. I'm kind of like a passionate, fiery person. And, uh, you know, take me as I am. Well, that, that's not what we have here in, in terms of what God is anticipating for our lives. I'll give, I'll give a trial definition here and we'll see what we do as we work our way through it. Self-control, and we're talking about biblical self-control, is a product of the indwelling spirit because, Galatians 5.23, self-control is a part of the fruit of the spirit. And divine energy to avoid falling prey to temptations, especially sensual temptations, that's that, the key emphasis here is sexual, sensual temptations, and to lead a stable and disciplined life. 
So there's a lot there, and we're going to unpack all of that. There's a lot of detail there, but in a sexualized society like we live, in a sensual society that we live in, one that's driven by passions and controlled by passions, it is a um, tremendous challenge for God's people to live in this way, to live in self-control, but we are called to. In Acts 24, 25, um, Paul, it's interesting, Paul was was criticized by the then high priest uh, Ananias who actually lawyered up and uh, purchased himself a lawyer by the name of Tertullus who brought charges against the apostle Paul to the then governor of Palestine by the name of Felix. And I think you'll find it somewhat comical about the charges that were laid against Paul and in some ways we can identify with them, I think. Um, the charges were that Paul was a pest who stirs up dissension. He's a ringleader of a cult, and he's the profaner of the temple. And the reason they call him profaner of the temple was because he invited Greeks to join the movement. He was um, promoting, the, promoting an anti-racist God. And uh, in fact, though, Paul was actually preaching righteousness self-control and the judgment of God. And this idea of self-control is a, a big, big part of the Apostle Paul's teaching and Peter picks up on it here as well. Now we need to know that, that this word in its root form uh, is the word kratos which actually is used by Paul in Ephesians 1.19 to describe the power, strength and might of God. And this is very instructive for us as we understand it, how it's used contextually and biblically. Because keep in mind, the, the word was used in the common marketplace of Greek secular pe Greek people. Self-control is not just a Bible term. It's not a theological term. It's a secular term that has a biblical meaning as it's contextually placed in the scriptures. We have to always understand that. And, and so it's important to see when you're tra tracking with what does a word mean or you, you track with where the word is used elsewhere and how it's used elsewhere. And Paul used the root of this word to describe the mighty strength of God by his mighty strength, the strength of his might actually. So when we are understanding what this self-control is all about, we start to begin to develop an idea in terms of its source and what it means and we realize that for us to be self-controlled or literally in control, in uh, cooperating literally with the mighty strength of God in us. That's what this is all about. It begins to create a whole different picture for us. Because when we approach this, we're like, self-control, I've battled that my whole life. I've struggled to do that my whole life. How am I ever going to do this? This is not a request or a commandment for us to do something in our own strength. Not at all. That's how the secular world uses it. Self-control, just kind of bear down, be disciplined. I'm going to do this or do that. That's not what this is about. This is about recognizing that at your salvation, you were granted the divine power and presence of the Holy Spirit who moves into your life. His mighty strength is resident in you, the same strength that raised Jesus from the dead. Now, will you or will you not 
Live out that strength of God from the inside out in how you handle decisions of life. So it's having power from within over your powers and strength of might. In other words, we all have fleshly power in us, every one of us. We have the power to abuse people. The question is, are you going to live by the mighty strength of God in you instead of your own powers to abuse people and ab or abuse yourself? That's what this is, the question that's being asked. So it's about location of the energy that we have in us. Something within is able to overpower our powers. That's what self-control is all about. It's also a call to live responsibly and not destabilize your life or that of your family or your church. That's the, the gift of God to us in this willingness to respond to His work in our life causes us to live a steady, stable, righteous life. Because the, the, that's what the, the strength of God's might in this world produces righteousness and stability and steadiness and security. And so it does in our lives if we embrace it. If we refuse to embrace the strength of God in our lives through the Holy Spirit, then we become destabilized because he withdraws his restraint in our life and says, okay, have at it. Have at it in your own strength and see how well that goes for you. You can see this in, for instance, Isaiah 3, um, where the people of God, and, and we have these fabulous examples. Well, they're, they're, I guess they're, um, they're examples that are, are often heartbreaking and certainly not um, to be emulated, but they are instructive for us. And God's people were constantly straying from God, leaning on their own strength and dependence. And, and Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 3, 1 to 4. See now the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support. If we refuse to embrace the effort that is commanded of us here to live in light of the strength of God for self-control, God withdraws his strength, withdraws himself. This is what's happening here. So take from Jerusalem both supply and support, all supplies of food and all supplies of water, the hero and warrior, he's taking all of these away. He's taking the judges away, the prophets, the soothsayer, the elder, the captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor. He's taking away their protection, skilled craftsmen, clever enchanter. I will make boys their officials. Mere children will govern them. You ever wonder what's going on? God withdraws from a society himself. And we are left in poverty, poverty of, uh, of leadership, uh, reckless leadership, poverty of morality, and in poverty of economics, inflation. And that, that's, poor, that's been demonstrated over and over again through history. You can look at Romans 1.18 where God talks about withdrawing in, in, in uh, light of the fact that people do not worship Him. God will not hesitate to discipline His people. He will not hesitate to discipline you if you take this idea lightly. 
It is the inner strength to say no to sin. Self-control is the inner strength to say no to sin. It's the spiritual credential needed to become battle-hardened warriors of Christ. That's what self-control is. And by the way, it's not so much when we get the idea of self-control, the very sound of it in the English language leads us astray because self-control sounds like we're manufacturing it, that we're doing it. The English, to, to translate it in the, the Greek into the word self is really a misnomer. It's a compound word, kratos and kratos. In other words, the mighty strength of God from within. That's an entirely different picture than you get with the idea of self-control, isn't it? Self-control sounds like it's me doing it. It's not me doing it. But it's the inner strength to say no to sin that comes from within, that comes from the strength of God and comes from us cooperating with the strength of God. But I would hasten to say right away, fourthly in this whole definition of what, it's not let go and let God either. I don't love that phrase. In fact, I don't know that there's anywhere in Scripture where God animates pass our passivity. It's actually get God and do right. It's embrace the living God and cooperate with what he wants to do in our lives. That's what self-control really is. Christianity's not puppetry. It's not God somehow pulling the strings of our life. He's a sovereign God over all things, yes. And God is entirely in control of this universe. But he, it's never presented in the scriptures as if we are puppets of God. We are servants of the living God, accountable to God, responsible to God, based on the raw materials he gives us by the divine indwelling presence of God. That's how this works. That's how self-control moves forward. Well, why do we need self-control? Secondly, one word, sin. Sin is the reason we need self-control. Sin kills our effectiveness. Sin kills our productivity as followers of Jesus Christ. Some might ask, well, if, why doesn't God just, when he brings us into his kingdom as his followers, why doesn't he just insulate us and isolate us from all temptations? Why, wouldn't that make it a lot easier for all of us? How many are in favor of that? I could be persuaded to do that until you, until you really study and understand the reality of that. If God were to do that, we would never grow. Not at all. Temptations in all of their forms are testing grounds to, to, in, in terms of our growth and sanctification. It is, through, it is through the temptations that God allows to come into our lives that we learn to require dependence upon God. And as we depend upon God, we actually grow more and more like Christ. So temptations are allowed to come into our life in order to, for us to grow. Self-centered or self-control is the spiritual credential that God gives us by his strength and enables us to use by his strength to grow more and more like Jesus Christ. Christ himself demonstrated complete self-control at all times. He was always following the will of his Father. Now, by the way, God 
doesn't need the quality of self-control. I hope you know that. Nowhere in the Bible will you ever see in the description of God, God, it, you'll see he's long-suffering and patient and kind and gracious and all that. You'll never see self-control. God doesn't need to be self-controlled. God is always in control. God is always sovereign. God is unchangeable. He doesn't wake up in a bad mood. He's always the same. God is never anxious. God is never afraid. God, so it, it, it is a quality given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit because of sin. We learn, of course, and John Owen uh, writes correctly, that sin always aims at the uttermost the smallest sin is but one step to the biggest and most treacherous sin. That's so true. If we have any unguarded uh, place in our lives and leave it that way, it will expand and increase and bring great problems to our lives. If we, if we are at all are unwilling in any area of our life to embrace the call of God to self-control, our lives will go spiraling out of control, ultimately. So we are called to master, mastery over our lives to no longer be ruled by evil desires, but by the strength of God in our lives. Let me illustrate this. I, I read um, an article written by Tim Challies, which was actually borrowed from Tommy Nelson, who... Uh, who's a pastor and a writer um, who wrote on the matter of the growth of little sin, particularly in the areas of marriage. And since lots of you are married or have been married or are planning to get married or whatever, I think it's an appropriate illustration to help us understand the, the dangers of ignoring self-control and where it can lead. Um, he writes about how an affair happens. And he talks about th six E's to, to, uh, toward um, an affair. And uh, I think it's worth looking at because it illustrates how heinous sin is. It starts really small and takes you ultimately to where you never ever dreamed that you could be. And that is the importance of self-control. And, 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 the, and the, it works this way. There's a progress, progression to an affair that starts with eliminating intimacy in your marriage, where you stop showering affection upon your spouse. Um, you, you pull back from, from touching and hugging and compliments and serving and interest. And ultimately, in so doing, you are creating a need. The one who is pushing away is creating, is, is creating a need in their own life, and by pushing their spouse away, they are creating a need in their spouse's life. So, at that point, when a need is created, because we are all out and about in the world, we encounter an alternative attractiveness. We encounter someone who in fact uh, demonstrates to us the missing uh, need that we have in our own lives. What our spouse seems to be 
lacking. And after that happens, we may start to enjoy that particular person that seems to be the alternative attraction in our lives, and we begin to enjoy that person um, who now displaces the emotional space that our spouse used to occupy. At this moment, in every marriage, the alarm bells should start to ring. If they haven't already, I would advise that they do sooner than this. But at this moment, by the grace of God, it is critical that self-control kick in. If that doesn't happen, we will expedite opportunities. We will start to or orchestrate coincidences to be in that person's space, to take our break at the same time or to intersect or cross paths when we know that person is going to be somewhere. And we know this is happening. We know what's going on. If we don't correct and quickly course correct, we will express our feelings openly because once we get to this place, it gets so exciting in our lives that we need to, we need to investigate whether or not there might be some reciprocal feelings. And so we might start to have a conversation with that person like, I wish my wife was more like you. And we're waiting to hear that person say back to us, well, I kind of wish my husband was more like you. And once we've gone there, as Tommy Nelson writes, we've built the bridge to fantasy land. And there's only one thing left after that, and that's to experience the enjoyment of that person physically. And then all that's left of us is to become adulterers. And we wonder how we got from there to here. It's one small sin at a time, one lack of consideration of self-control at a time, and ultimately, we find ourselves alienated from God and hardened to Him. John Owen writes, there is a deceit to sin that tends to hardening of hearts from the fear of God. We start to embrace believable lies and attractive alternatives. That's the problem with progressive Christianity. It seems to be, it seems to be committed to casting off traditional restraint and convincing oneself that there are new roads and new paths and better ways and that God is broader than we thought he was. That's not a new problem or a new issue either. In Jeremiah 6, again, uh, God is warning his people and he speaks out to them from the least to the greatest. Jeremiah 6, verse 13, all are greedy for gain, prophets and priests alike, all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No. 
They have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Now listen to this. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your soul. Beloved, um, the whole concept of self-control is critical because sin makes us stupid. Self-control is, is critical to our lives and our growth before God. Being able to know the difference between what is true and what sounds true but isn't true. That's a critical moment for us with all the noise around us. And self-control trains us to be sharp at hearing God, at hearing His way, that this is the way. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. This is the way. We hear that voice. Walk in it. But there's a third real upbeat reason why we train in self-control. Maybe you haven't thought about this before, but we are training as God's people for ruling the universe. Did you know that? We are training every day of our lives here in this earth for our eternal vocation. I have to show you this. Maybe you just haven't ever noticed, but in Revelation chapter 5, in this great text where John, the apostle, has this great vision of eternity, the vision of, of the Lamb of God in, in, in Revelation 5. And, and here there's this great worship event taking place. And in this worship event, verse 9, the, the, the uh, myriads of living creatures are singing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And listen, here's, here's what we get, here's who we are. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve God and they will reign on the earth. Now, who will reign on the earth? The people of God a kingdom and priests who will reign together. People of every tribe, of every language, of every people, of every nation are being prepared right now in God's family for our eternal vocation, which is to rule and reign and worship Christ and rule and reign with Him over the universe. So does it matter that you get good at this stuff? This is why Peter is saying make, an, make every effort. Like I, I know of people, you know, they are so disciplined, they get up every morning like really early and, and, and they go to the gym. I know nothing of this kind of discipline, by the way. I hang on to the bed in the morning as long as I possibly can. I don't like going to it in the evening. I, I avoid bed as long as I can in the evening because I like staying up. But I love, you know, I'm never getting up to go disciplining myself with some gym just for some six pack. 
I got an 18-pack going here. I don't, why would I want a six-pack? Anyway, I, 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 but people do that. It's just amazing what they will do just so they can, like, look decent in the mirror. You know what I mean? It's like, but we, God's people, are training for the vocation of ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ forever over the new heavens and the new earth. Does that get your, your wood fired up a little bit, does it? I hope so, because this is an exciting reality for us. And, and look at, you know, it, it's amazing because what John hears in verse 13 is that I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. I can't wait for that moment. I mean, think about it. All of the creatures that will still exist and the angels and God's people on the earth, under the earth, in the sea, singing to God. We won't have any plexiglass in front of us. It's just going to be unbridled, spectacular. It, beloved, it's worth getting excited about self-control now, isn't it? So you're saying to me, Rick, how? How do we do this? Uh, I hear you. I'm incredibly excited about it now. I mean, I can see it on your faces. You just can hardly wait to get out of here this morning to prove how self-controlled you are. In the parking lot, for instance. Okay. How can you invest in, the, in this kind of dis disciplined life of self-control? I'll give you five tactics. Our daily lives are a series of choices, yes? Every day we have a series of choices. And in those series of choices, it really breaks down to two, one of two decisions. In this choice, am I going to please myself or am I going to please Jesus? And of course, we rejoice and sing the hallelujah chorus when it intersects and we can please ourselves and please Jesus at the same time. That's a great moment. But most of the time, it doesn't work that way. The first tactic is single-mindedness and loyalty to Christ. Single-mindedness in loyalty to Christ. Am I going to please Jesus? And we don't rationalize any exceptions to this. In, in 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul is, is writing to the Corinthians, helping them to understand what motivated his life, what moved him to self-control, how it was that he lived his life for Jesus. And he said to them this, when I recognize the love of Christ, it constrains me. It controls me. It moves me. In other words, when I daily think of the vision of my Savior loving me so much that he died on a cross for me, that, and I didn't deserve any of it. I was a, 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 a person out there slaughtering Christians. When I think about that kind of love for me, I, I have a single-minded loyalty to Jesus for what he has done for me. And it's, it's, what this is, is it absolute. 
I, I, never, I never say, well, maybe just this time, you know, maybe just this time I'll, I'll please myself and not Jesus. No, this is, a, this is a single mind of folks. Remember you asked, how do we do this self-control thing? It's, it's a building every day in my life. No exceptions. You, you can't be sort of pregnant. You can't be sort of loyal. Do you understand? You just can't be. You're either loyal or you aren't. Secondly, purity of purpose. Purity of purpose to pursue holiness in everything. Sin sucks the life out of you. It will weaken your resolve. If you are allowing sin to be in your life, it will start to deaden your own conscience. The Bible talks about your conscience being seared. You stop noticing it in your life, but, but for some reason you're struggling in your life, but you've stopped noticing your sin long ago. It weakens you. It makes you unable to to live a life of self-control in other areas of your life. This is critical to get a hold of. If you give sin a foothold in your life, Paul writes it will be like checking your brain at the door because sin always makes us, as I said, stupid. Third, humility of heart. This is key, a life repenting of our pride. A proud person is, not, is never self-controlled. Because a proud person doesn't need to be self-controlled. They are entitled, they know better than everyone else, and they do things their way. This is worth looking at in our, in our text. You're at Second Peter anyway, why don't you just flip back a page to First Peter chapter five. Peter's writing here to young men, but this is applicable to everyone. He says to to the young men in 1 Peter 5 and verse 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud. Why does God oppose the proud? Because the proud are opposing God. The, The proud don't need God. The proud have stopped depending on God. But he gives grace to the humble. How critical is that? When we're talking about this matter of self-control, do we not need the presence and power of God, the free gift of God to do this? Absolutely. God promises to give grace to the humble, not to the proud. And here's the problem. Here's the plight of of the proud. Look at, humble yourselves, keep going in verse 6, therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him. Who has the anxiety here? The proud are the ones who have the anxiety. Be self-controlled and alert because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. The proud are not self-controlled and as a result are prey for the enemy's attack in their life. How important is humility in this matter of self-control? And how important is this self-control in the matter of, of escaping the, uh, the devouring presence of the enemy, the devil himself? Critical. Critical to our lives. Self-control is not just a nice thing to have. It's an actual weapon against the wiles of the enemy. Fourthly, fasting. The people of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament practice this discipline of fasting. 
My experience has been in the modern Christian world, there's not a lot of fasting going on as a discipline. This is not just, this isn't for a diet, folks. I'm not talking about keto fasting. I'm talking about fasting for the purpose of a spiritual discipline. And what's the deal here? Fasting teaches us to learn how to say no to the most basic needs. And if I can learn to say no to the most basic needs, I can learn to say no to temptation to sin. Fasting is the practical training ground for self-control. If you are struggling in your life to be a self-controlled person, you might want to consider fasting. Here's the problem. Here's the reason for fasting. What we usually don't know about our lives is there are underlying things in our life that are in control of our life. Things that we've long ago forgotten about or don't realize. We, could have, we can have things like jealousy, bitterness, fear, anger. For the most part, our lives are controlled by the wrong things that have somehow been allowed to hang around in our life because of some past experiences. And those things get in the way of self-control, get in the way of, of the Spirit of God controlling our lives if we allow them to continue to be there. Fasting surfaces the ugliness that you've been hiding or that's been hiding from you, that's been living and actually in your subconscious controlling your life. When I fast, when, when we fast, what is, what is controlling our life will be sure to surface, whether it's anger, jealousy, bitterness, fear, it shows up in the fast. And we can deal with it. And until we deal with that, we will continue to struggle with self-control. We will be out of control in some area of our life, for sure. So I'm telling you that, that uh, if, if you want to know what's going on in your life, a hunt for self-control starts with fasting. We have to come to the place in our life, and Jesus is the model in Matthew 4 and the other Gospels as well, but in Matthew 4, we have to learn self-control comes from finally conceding that the truth that we need to sustain us is found in the Word of God. What we need to control our lives is found in the Word of God, and that is discovered in a time of fasting. Did Jesus discover it in fasting? No, Jesus knew it, but he spoke it to us in the midst of a fast. Okay, finally, fifth, lock into God's purpose for your life and the goals he sets for you according to his will. Don't get pulled to the right or to the left. It is absolutely imperative for us in order to live a self-controlled life that we don't live randomly. You will not succeed if you just get up every day and think it randomly is gonna take care of itself. It will not. We have to lock and load our lives into the call of God for us according to his will and according to his word. Rev, uh, Romans 12, 1, 2 talks about renewing of our mind in God's word. 
We need every day to be reminded of the will of God for our life, the purpose of God for our life through the word of God to our life. And in, in that reality, what we are saying is, for instance, um, the intentionally disciplined life of self-control says, my marriage, the goal of my marriage, as God has laid it out in his word and in his will, is that we go the distance. And every day, that's the way I live. That's the way we are called to live. Or, or in the issues of holiness or turning aside from sin, God's will for us is every day to listen to God. This is the way. Walk in it. And, and to not concede one tiny piece of ground in the will and purpose of God and goals of God for our life. Not for a moment. That builds and develops our self-control. We need to reorientate all of our goals around the will of God and the word of God and the long look of God, the eternal consequences. We need to think about every decision that we make in our life based on its eternal reality, its eternal consequences, its eternal expectations, its eternal anticipations, its eternal considerations. We need to... To, to discipline our lives in such a way by the power and strength of God so that what I'm about to think, what I'm about to say, what I'm about to do, what I'm about to decide, what I'm about to purchase, will this lead to a stable, disciplined, righteous protection over my own soul, over my own family, Christ-honoring life. Everything about our lives. We, as God's people, can't live a life over the short run, thinking about the short run, making decisions uh, about the immediate. Self-control is the life of a person who knows and understands that the Christian life is about the eternal. It's about pleasing God over the long haul. It's about living for God every day of our life. It's about a long, slow, hard, arduous walk in the same direction every single day. It's living, not living short, it's living long. It's not choosing the temporal and then abandoning the eternal. It's rather choosing the eternal every time to the glory of God. That's what self-control looks like and lives like. It's the what, the why, and the how. Make every effort to add this to your spiritual toolkit it will expedite your growth into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ who has given himself for you. And that's what constrained Paul to live a self-controlled life, the love of Jesus. Father, thank you so much for your word to us and giving us the precious Holy Spirit, uh, enabling us from within housing in us the same power that raised Jesus from the dead to enable us to say no to ungodliness 
But Father, this is a journey of decisions, small decisions every day. Lord, help us to do the work necessary to be the people that you've blessed us to be for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.